Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, another week of Come Follow Me study uh, under our belts. We're all getting a little smarter as we go, I have no doubt. Uh, this week, we were in uh, 1 Nephi 16 through 22. Uh, once again, we've asked for your questions, and I am here to give you the answers. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but just remember the answers given here do not represent the official views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, obviously, uh, but they also don't represent the official views of Book of Mormon Central or even the Come Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. Uh, and since they're kind of off the cuff and I haven't uh, prepared them as thoroughly as I certainly would like, uh, they don't really even represent my official views. Uh, so please don't hold me accountable for this uh, 10 years later if I've changed my mind. Um, but lots of great questions on 1 Nephi 16 through 22. So uh, we're going to go ahead and just dive right in. And uh, hopefully uh, this doesn't take too much of your Friday night to listen to. So uh, first question comes from uh, Sandra Haskell. And she asked, the Liahona has two spindles. One shows the way. What did the other spindle do? That's a good question. And it's connected to this question that actually Xander, uh, Xander himself asked for us. Uh, although we may never know for certain, what could the Liahona have looked like? Uh, and I, I say these are connected because both of them really kind of depend on what the Liahona is. And we don't exactly know for sure. Uh, right now, the best theory that's kind of out there, I think, is the one that was put forth by uh, Timothy Gervais and John L. Joyce in a paper called By Small Means, Rethinking the Liahona, which you can get, uh, you can read the whole paper in the Book of Mormon Central archive uh, at bookofmormoncentral.org or at the Interpreter Foundation website where it was originally published, uh, interpreterfoundation.org. Um, they, like I said, I think they put forth the best guess. It's, uh, I'm, I don't know if it's 100% convincing for me, but it's the best guess so far. Uh, they suggest that it's an astrolabe, uh, and they have a couple pictures of what an astrolabe is in the paper, so that gives you an idea of what it probably looked like if that's what it is, uh, or you can even just Google astrolabe, A-S-T-R-O-L-A-B-E, and uh, that'll give you an idea of what it might look like. If that is what it is, then the two spindles are really different than what we think they are. And the explanation is kind of technical. I'm probably going to butcher it. Uh, so I would really recommend if you're interested in, in really getting at this, go to the paper by Gervais and Joyce and read what they had to say uh, and their explanation of, of the spindles. But basically, uh, the astrolabe has a, uh, a portion that can spin and rotate that is meant to uh, identify where the main constellations and, and star uh, mapping and stuff is in the sky based on where you're at. Um, and so uh, this would spin and it would have pointers on it that would be that would represent the stars and things like that. Uh, and you could have two kind of separate things that would spin on it at the same time. And that's kind of what they think is the uh, the spindle spindles or pointers. 
Uh, like I said, if that doesn't make sense to you, go read the actual paper. It gets kind of technical. You'll probably understand it a lot better if you see what they have to say. Um, another explanation that isn't dependent on it being an astrolabe, uh, as far as the two spindles go, that I think is pretty interesting and worth considering, uh, is one that was offered by Robert Bunker in a paper he published uh, quite some time ago called The Design of the... Nah, excuse me. It's called the De design of the Liahona and the purpose of the second spindle. And you can find that also in the Book of Mormon Central archive at bookofmormoncentral.org. But basically what he suggests is that the two spindles uh, would both point the way simultaneously. And it was when they were both pointing in the same direction that Lehi and his family knew the Liahona was working. And when they weren't pointing in the same direction, you'd have something like this, right? So it's pointing in two different directions, how do you know which way to go under those circumstances? How do you know which uh, pointer or spindle to follow? Uh, that's how they knew it wasn't working. So when the bow breaks and they go and they see, oh my gosh, it's not working, maybe it's because the two spindles are now in two different directions and they don't know where they're supposed to go. Uh, and so they knew that it was working properly when the spindles aligned and they could... It, they could see it was only pointing one way. That's the explanation, uh, like I said, Robert Bunker in, in his paper, and I think that's a pretty interesting uh, explanation as well. Um, a lot of people had questions about the broken bow. They're all interrelated, so I'm going to read several, several questions off here in a row, uh, and then I'm going to talk about that story and uh, what I think is going on here. Uh, first one is from Alan Hansen, who's actually a friend of mine, uh, who knows archery, and so he probably actually has a better answer to his question uh, than I do already, <laughs> uh, and I'm probably being tested by him right now. But anyway, uh, Alan Hansen asks, why was Nephi's family so worried about not being able to get food when their bows broke if they had slings? Good question. Follow up uh, to that question by Christopher Hansen. I, I don't know if there's a relation there, but Christopher Hansen asked, why would Laman and Lemuel have avoided a solution like Nephi's for their bows that had already lost their springs? Would this be another case like the boat uh, in the uh, where... Um, there's maybe some typo here in the Lord uh, teaching Nephi beyond his natural skills. Is is the Lord trying to push Nephi, basically, I think is what he's asking here. Uh, and similar question from Christy Ludvigson. Uh, well, Christy Ludvig Ludvigson Wilcox. Uh, why has Nephi, uh, why was Nephi the only one to go hunt for food after the bows lost their springs and his bow broke? Was it because he was the only one who had faith? Yes, but I think there's a little more going on here. Uh, I rather think the other men would have gone to help feed their families. We certainly would hope so, uh, usually, but we know that Laman and Lemuel aren't always great at that. Uh, really, sh you know, they kind of like to shirk their responsibilities. But th like I said, there's more going on here. So one more question, two more questions, actually, that are related to all this, and then I'm going to give kind of a big picture, I think, that's relevant. Uh, Cindy Rhodes asked, uh, just echoed the same question. Yes, that is my question, especially why didn't Sam go with Nephi to hunt? Uh, he at least is known to uh, for having faith in the past. Um, and then Jan Cahoon Campbell, why does everyone turn on Nephi when his bow breaks? Uh, and yet theirs are obviously broken too. All great questions. I think most of them go back to why Nephi is telling this story in the first place. And the best uh, analysis of this story in the Book of Mormon that I know of was written by Alan Goff, 
uh, in his master's thesis, and I'm sorry, it's a master's thesis, it's academic, so there's a lot of big words in this title here, uh, but it's called A Hermeneutic of Sacred Texts, Historicism, Revisionism, Positivism, and the Bible in the Book of Mormon. Uh, you can find that master's thesis on BYU's Scholars Archive, uh, and uh, it's chapter four. The fourth chapter deals with the story about the broken bow. It's been a while since I've read it, so I'm fuzzy a little bit on some of the details of his analysis. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of what I'm going to say, though, can be found in there. Um, but basically, Nephi is telling this story because he's trying to make a point about the leadership of the group and subtly reinforce the message that we get back in 1 Nephi 2, that he is the one who's been divinely chosen to rule over the group once Lehi passes away. The bow and arrow uh, are symbols of authority in the ancient Near East, and uh, specifically in Israel, we have iconography coming directly from Israel that shows uh, the bow being handed uh, over uh, as a symbol of authority by the king to officials and, and people being delegated with that kind of authority and things like that. And the broken bow, in particular, is a symbol of loss of authority. So uh, once all the once Nephi's bow breaks, now all the bows are broken. And so it kind of symbolically suggests that the authority for everyone in the group is gone. No one has uh, the right to lead or rule. Once Nephi builds a bow, now he is the only one with that uh, that item, that weapon, symbolically representing authority uh, to rule and to be in charge. And the symbolism is not lost on Laman and Lemuel, who shortly afterwards, we know once they're in Nahum and uh, Ishmael dies, they are complaining that Nephi, uh, this is towards the end of 1 Nephi 16, they're complaining that he is aspiring to rule over them. Uh, and so the symbolism of this of Nephi having a bow and them not having working bows is not lost on them. And the fact that Nephi is willing to go and make a bow, basically they see that as him asserting his authority over the group. Um, but I think what's important to notice with what Nephi's doing is he's not actually asserting uh, narratively, not just by the fact that he has a bow, at least, is he claiming the right to rule, his actual right to rule is stemming from the fact that he is the only one in the family who is faithful to the Lord in this instance. Um, everyone else is unfaithful. Everyone else in the whole episode, even Lehi is said to murmur at this point, but Nephi doesn't. He looks for a solution, he builds a bow, and he is obedient to the Lord, and he's the only one who follows the Lord's directions given on the Liahona to go get food, and he succeeds. Um, so going back really quickly to the individual questions now, why worry about food when they still have slings? It may have been uh, because of something like slings not being able to slay as large of prey or as much prey or Whatever the case may be, I don't know about the real-world implications necessarily, but from a narrative standpoint, uh, the Nephi's emphasis is on the availability and access to bows because of the symbolic authority they represent. And so he kind of, he mentions that they have slings, but he just kind of doesn't really deal with that at all. Uh, why is he the only one who looks for a solution and goes hunting? Again, it's because he's the one who is faithful to the Lord, and therefore, and that's why he's the one who has the right to rule. He's the one that the Lord has chosen to rule, um, is his faithfulness. Um, 
And again, like I said, even Lehi murmurs here. So Sam, uh, we don't actually have Sam explicitly mentioned in this narrative, but if Lehi is murmuring, then Sam is probably not being faithful either. Um, and, and that's the, the main point. Nephi is the only one faithful here. Why does everyone turn on him? It's the contrast of their unfaithfulness um, by, by their turning on him. And in, in practicality, part of it may have been since his was the last boat to break, he's an easy scapegoat. Everyone was relying on him with the, with the only working bow, and now it's broken. Uh, but, but the point Nephi is trying to convey is their unfaithfulness in contrast to his faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. Um, now, uh, Jan Cahoon Campbell also had a couple of other related questions. Uh, one is, I wonder where the steel bow comes from and why it appears to be Nephi's personally. Um, and she mentions in her comment that, uh, my colleague, Stephen Smoot has suggested it came from Laban. Uh, that's the best guess I know of. Uh, it would actually make a lot of sense if it did, even though Nephi doesn't mention it during the Laban narrative. Um, so why don't we, uh, go with that for now? I, I don't know if there's other guesses out there, you know, feel free to share them. Um, then, uh, related to that, she says, what could Nephi have been trained in to be able to use, uh, steel bows, hunt so well, considering he grew up in Jerusalem, survive in the desert, find ore and make tools and records, build and navigate a ship, uh, build temples and a nation, etc. Um, he's incredibly hands-on. I'm very impressed with all he could do physically and creatively with his hands, um, I think, and uh, she mentions just before that part I read, which is the question, uh, that uh, Nibley has suggested that Lehi was a tent maker. Uh, I don't think Lehi was a tent maker. I think Lehi and uh, ultimately the entire family were metal workers. I think they had some training in metallurgy and things like that. Uh, this is what's been suggested by Jeff Chadwick and uh, and John Tavetness. I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago in our first video when lots of people were asking about Lehi and his background and things like that. Um, I think the evidence, precisely some of the evidence that she just mentioned, his ability to make tools and his ability to, to find ore and to turn those into plates and all that kind of stuff, I think that all of that really kind of suggests that the family trade is metalworking. Now, what that means, though, is they are craftsmen of some type. Uh, they're, they're tradesmen. They're specialized tradesmen who work specifically in metal, but they are very hands-on. They have a lot of experience working with their hands. They probably have some general skills that you've got to acquire just in, in being a tradesman in, in that day and age, and their time traveling in the wilderness probably forced them to learn some new skills with their hands uh, in order to uh, maintain and upkeep their tents and uh, and things like that that probably came in handy when it came time to build the boat, start uh, start building uh, cities and, and nations in the new world, things like that. Um, Morgan uh, Dean here, he asks, what do you think about the theory that Lehi and company were in captivity during this period? Um, and for those who aren't familiar with what uh, Morgan is referring to, there are two papers by S. Kent Brown. One is called A Case for Lehi's Bondage in Arabia. The other one is Sojourn, Dwell, and Stay, Terms of Servitude. You can find both of those in Book of Mormon Central's archive uh, at bookofmormoncentral.org. Um, the basic idea is uh, there were eight years in the wilderness. The journey that they take 
really should only take about four to six months, uh, uh, typically. Uh, we know tradesmen and, uh, you know, caravaneers and stuff who are trading goods and stuff, they're making this same route in just a few months all the time back in, in ancient times. Uh, and so in trying to account for some of that extra time, Kent Brown has suggested that they may have actually been in servitude to some of the tribes of Southern Arabia as they're going along this eastward leg of their journey after Nahum. Um, and uh, my thoughts on it are, I'm open to it. It's possible. Uh, I'm not personally convinced by it. And uh, some of my own research uh, points in some different directions, mainly because I have a different view on what is the most likely route eastward. And I think the route they took likely avoided a lot of uh, the central areas where these tribes are and would have avoided their conflict with them. And they, they would not have actually run into them and been forced into servitude. Uh, and I'm also, I'm my own working chronology for the journey is a little different. I think they spent more time in the Valley of Lemuel than, uh, than he does and, and things like that. I'm not ready to go on record on any of, of that, uh, on most of the details of, of that, though it's still kind of work in progress. But I don't think his this possibility can be dismissed. It's an interesting one. And the evidence he brings in uh, from his textual analysis and allusions uh, from later Nephites to the journey where he uh, he notices language that would suggest uh, a, a struggle and difficulty are all uh, very intriguing, interesting possibilities. It's something worth checking out uh, for those who might be interested. Uh, go read Kent Brown's papers and decide for yourself what you think. Uh, but like I said, I'm open to it, not convinced. All right, the next question comes from McKay Heasley, and he asked, when Nephi speaks about fiery flying serpents, are we to understand that these serpents had wings and could fly? Uh, yes and no. I don't think that when Nephi talks about fiery flying serpents, he's talking about any kind of real actual snake that existed. Um, we know in the actual biblical narrative, they're just referred to as fiery serpents. Uh, but what's really interesting is uh, the word for these serpents is seraph, okay? And uh, the plural of seraph is seraphim. Now, that should sound familiar to you if you have read Isaiah 6. These seraphim in Isaiah 6 have wings, okay? And uh, it's probably a little bit jarring to think of serpents being in the presence of God with wings and stuff like that. It's a little odd, I know, um, but, uh, and we can maybe get into what's going on there at another time, but the point I want to make here is there's iconography in ancient Israel, and besides the biblical text there, we have actually found uh, little seals and other things like that with images of snakes carved on them and then wings carved onto the snakes, and scholars say that's the biblical seraph right there uh, being represented by those. Um, this would indicate there's this iconography of fiery serpents that have wings or can fly. And Nephi is alluding to this imagery or iconography, uh, that he's familiar with when he talks, when he says that they're not just fiery, but also flying serpents. It's a, a symbol that uh, is part of their um, ancient Israelite worldview, um, but I don't know that the actual snakes in in 
in the Sinai desert that bit the Israelite people could in fact fly. That's just how they symbolically represented them in their iconography. Um, and you can read a bit more about that. We have a Noai, uh, Noai number 316 called Why Did Nephi Say Serpents Could Fly? Uh, that goes into that a little bit more, shows you some of the iconography I'm talking about. You can see those images. Uh, next question is from Kathy Rapley. Hi, Mom. Uh, if Laman and Lemuel didn't want to help Nephi build a boat that could cross the many waters, why did they get on the boat instead of staying in Bountiful? Uh I feel like, uh, you know, this is a pretty consistent theme. Each week, there are some people who are asking questions about why Laman and Lemuel keep going along with things uh, when they're, they really don't want to or, or whatever the case may be. Um, I think it, uh, I just, you know, over and over again, I think we, we see this, their rebellions and things like that because that's what Nephi is highlighting. But if you actually pay really close attention to what's going on throughout First Nephi, you realize most of the time they're, they're going along with what they're supposed to do. Uh, they're, they're actually, um, I don't want to make them out to be sterling examples of obedience, but they are obedient enough most of the time. Uh, we think they're really bad because Nephi is highlighting their bad behavior more than their good behavior. Uh, and I'm not saying this because I, I don't want to be misunderstood to be saying that they aren't bad guys. They are the bad guys. They are the bad examples here. But I think when we realize that they're actually obedient most of the time, they're actually doing what they're supposed to most of the time, they're actually pretty uh, regular people who do believe in God. They're typical Jews of their time, um, and they're obedient and, and following Lehi most of the time. Uh, that's actually maybe a little more applicable to us, and uh, we realize... Uh, that, that's a more useful example uh, for us to learn from because <laughs> we realize that could be describing us most of the time too, right? Um, and that's the bad example. We can be more like Laman and Lemuel than we tend to think because we like to think of them as total villains who are wicked and we're nothing like that. But I think sometimes we are quite a bit like that. We're obedient most of the time, but we murmur. We, uh, we go along with what we're supposed to do most of the time, but it's kind of begrudgingly. Uh, sometimes we do rebel and, and go against what we're supposed to do. We shouldn't be like that. We're, they're the bad example, right? We need to be better. Um, but that's a much more applicable bad example, something we can learn from a little more than just this they're bad all the time kind of thing. Um, but getting to this specific instance uh, that we're talking about where they're getting on the boat, I think if we back up a little bit to the interaction that Nephi has with Laman and Lemuel when he's building the boat and they make fun of him and they don't think he can do it, the way that ends in the at the end of chapter 17 is the Lord tells Nephi to stretch forth his hand and they're shaken as a sign of God's power. And that convinces them that the Lord is with Nephi and they bear testimony. They express uh, their faith that the Lord is with Nephi, he's supporting them. And then the beginning of chapter 18 in verse one, we're told that they go forth and work the timbers with Nephi. They're now on board, <laughs> no pun intended with going on board the ship, uh, but they're, they're going along with what's going on now. And so, uh, and, and Nephi doesn't say anything about them lapsing again, uh, back into rebellion before they get onto the boat. We know they do rebel again once they're on the boat, but, 
Uh, and so we have every reason to think that from that point on, after they're shaken until they're on the boat, they're faithful. They believe and they, they, they're supportive of what's going on at that point. Um, all right. Next question comes from, uh, Cindy Rhodes. Uh, and she asks, uh, she mentions that first Nephi 1922 makes reference to the brass plates containing information regarding the doings of the Lord in other lands among other, uh, among people of old. Uh, do we have any idea what people he may be referring to? And this is a really good question. Um, in fact, a friend of mine just recently brought it up uh, amidst me and some of my other friends, and we had a really interesting discussion about it. Um, I'm not sure we got a definitive answer out of that discussion, but there's some interesting possibilities. Uh, one thought is uh, when we look at the Isaiah chapters, Nephi quotes right after this, uh, particularly Isaiah 49, it's about scattered Israel and it's about uh, how they've been scattered to many different lands and particularly the isles of the sea and things like that. Uh, perhaps that's all Nephi's referring to when he talks about the doings of the Lord in other lands, um, because it, it's talking about what Lord, the Lord is going to do for scattered Israel in all these different lands. Um, another possibility that my friends and I were discussing, though, that I think is a little more interesting, at least, um, I don't know if it's more correct, but uh, is that uh, it kind of depends on who he's talking to right now. First uh, Nephi 19.22 says he's talking to his brethren which we might usually assume means Laman and Lemuel and Sam, uh, and probably the sons of Ishmael as well. But uh, this is when they've arrived in the new world, and as we've talked about in some of the other videos I've done here, um, it's very likely that they are, when they arrived, they began interacting with natives who already lived in the promised land. Um, we know archaeologically there were already people here before they arrived. There are various hints in the text that there are other people. Um, and in fact, now that, uh, you know, now that I've noticed this and begun to think about it, this passage may be one of those hints that people haven't yet picked up on, but it's a possibility here because if, uh, you know, they would have met these other people relatively soon after they arrived. And um, in connection with that, uh, these chapters in Isaiah actually talk a lot about how non-Israelite people, um, Gentiles, as they're called, uh, will be their nursing fathers and nursing mothers, as it says in Isaiah 49, and that they will aid the scattered Israel uh, and things like that. And if Nephi's likening these passages to his family, uh, this could be alluding to the natives they found there in um, when they arrived, who then helped them in surviving in this new environment and this new climate and where lots of things are different. You got to plant your crops differently and all kinds of things like that. Um, and you can actually, some people have, have talked about this. Uh, we have a no why on this. Uh, no why number 45 did, inter did interactions with others influence Nephi's selection of Isaiah. And then there's also a longer paper by Matt Roper and John Gee called I Did Liken All Scriptures Unto Us, Early Nephite Understandings of Isaiah's Implications for Others in the Land. You can read that in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. And that will talk about how Nephi's use of Isaiah seems to suggest if he's liking it to his people, 
their interaction with Gentiles or others. Um, if these Gentiles, some of the people who helped Nephi's family, converted to the gospel and joined them, then he might refer to them as brethren when talking to an audience of them. And if that's who he's talking to, then um, his use of stuff from the brass plates to teach them in the promised land, in the new world, about God's dealings with uh, people of old uh, in other lands... The other lands would just be back home for Nephi, right? The, in the old world, a very distant land to these native peoples in the new world. Um, and he's trying to teach them about what God has done for them back in the old world so that they can, you know, they're, you know, they're getting the first lessons, if you will, um, or gospel principles class, sort of. Um, they're learning about God's dealings with, with his people for the first time as they're uniting with Lehi and his family. That's an interesting possibility. Again, I don't know how correct it is, but it's something that my friends and I discussed, and I really like that possibility. Um, uh, Stephen Gedi asked um, for any thoughts as to why Nephi starts quoting Isaiah in chapter 48, and if there's any significance. I don't know about the chapter 48 in particular, but chapters 48 and 49... Um, both have a lot to do with scattered Israel. Um, and I think, uh, I think he chose these chapters because he felt they were especially relevant to his family's experience. In fact, I did just recently uh, write a blog on this, uh, 14 ways that Isaiah, uh, that Nephi may have likened Isaiah to his family. There's a lot in these chapters that as Nephi's reflecting on his family's experience, he probably really connects with and relates to. Um, and like I said, they're about scattered Israel. They're about them getting help from the Gentiles, things like that, uh, that, that probably just really resonated with his experience. And he's trying to teach them, uh, you know, to liken the scriptures unto them. And uh, despite the fact that this land they've come to is a promised land, a choice land that they've been given by the Lord, Jacob, in, in, uh, in, when we get to Jacob, we see he, he's, talks about how they still feel like strangers in a strange land, Lehi's family do. And uh, so the promises to scattered Israel in these chapters in particular are probably very comforting to him, knowing that the Lord is still with them, that he has, he's going to be taking care of them. He's watchful and mindful of, of the parts of Israel that have been scattered across the sea. All of those things are, are themes in these chapters that I think are very important to Nephi, and that's why he chooses them. Uh, there are other chapters in Isaiah that talk about this as well. So like I said, why these chapters in particular, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but you know, rather than some other chapter that, that talks about these themes, but we definitely can see how Nephi could relate to these chapters and the themes that are in them. Uh, and then this will be my last one, Michael Christensen. Do we know definitively what the land of Sinim is uh, in uh, 1 Nephi 21.12, which would be, Isaiah 49, 12. Um, most scholars believe that that is the island of Elephantine in Egypt. It is, um, uh, it's in southern Egypt. It's an island along the Nile, actually, and there was a Jewish or Israelite settlement there at the time, uh, and so most, that's what most scholars think it's referring to. Um, all right, once again, thank you guys for all your questions. Uh, had a lot of fun looking into them and trying to figure out what the answers might be or, or, you know, what, uh, what I might say. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. And, uh, I'll look forward to your questions for next week.